0: Hello and welcome to Unfrozen. My name is Dan Safarek.
1: And I'm Greg Lindsay, your co-host. And today our guest is Patrick McLamey, who, uh, our, our first our first chairman and CEO of one of the world-class architecture firms, former chairman and CEO, I should add, of HOK, uh, which, of course, has built airports and infrastructure and so much of the built environment. Um, he, of course, today is the chairman of Building Smart International, and Uh, In April 2020, he published a book, which we're delighted to get into, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm, The People, Stories, and Strategies Behind HOK, which, Dan, I want to get into because it's so rare that you see an architect actually write a book about how to build the firm itself versus their various manifestos, obsessions, and other arcana. So very excited to have Patrick on. Indeed. Welcome, Patrick.
2: Thank you both for having me. It's a real pleasure. And, of course, uh, I love talking about HOK and about architecture. And, uh, and I still have, even after all these years, I have a great passion for uh, the field and want to see architects be more successful than we are. That's, I think society needs us and we, and we are sometimes our own worst enemies in terms of the way we organize and, and, and operate our practices. Uh, so I'd be glad to get into that or into HOK or anything else you two uh, wish to speak about today
0: great well i think the first thing we do want to hit is you know what inspired you to write a book like this because there are so many monographs on the shelf that are very much about the design work of the firm and the inspiration of the projects which is all great and i think it's things that people really want to know and is part of the mystique of architects but one of the things that really seemed to be missing and i assume that was part of your inspiration. Um, you know, it was a practical business book about how to run a global firm what What kind of inspired you and what were your uh what were your near shelf inspirations you know perhaps from other fields
2: well, uh, it came about um, actually the idea for the book grew over time uh, when h o k people would get together because their offices scattered eventually offices scattered across the the world, when people would get together. Uh, one of our favorite uh, things to do was to tell HOK stories. We called them stories about the founders, funny stories about how we won or lost a job, uh, how we we got a second chance to design something, and these were these were really good stories. And I was always I loved hearing the stories, especially from the people that were that were there at the very beginning. I, I joined HOK when the firm was 12 years old. And still had just one office in an unlikely place, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, But the culture inside the firm was very rich. And uh, unlike many firms, it was a collaborative culture. People in the office, uh, that one first HOK office, wanted to help each other succeed. It wasn't the kind of culture where you climbed over each other to get to the top. It was quite, quite the opposite. It was like a big family. So when we told these stories uh, and I began to tell them myself, as I gained experience, someone would always say, gee, these are great stories. Why don't we write these down? And these were not stories about how cool the design work was. Usually they were about people and the stories of HOK, um, and how the firm was begun and why the firm was successful when others faltered and so on. And so, over the years, uh, no one wrote the book. No one collected HOK stories. So I just decided I would be the one who would collect HOK stories. And the week after I stepped down, I, I stepped down from the firm um, 50 years to the day after I began at the firm. Again, an unusual thing. So I was there. Uh, the firm was uh, was only 12 years old when I joined. I knew all the founders. I knew all the uh, the leaders of the firm in the earliest days all the way to the present, so i was a, a I was in a good position to chronicle who we were and how we got to where we are and yes, you're correct. most books about architecture are maybe properly so about the work, and uh, are people telling stories about how how great their design work is or how brilliant their design work is and I wanted to just run up basically collect a series of HOK stories. And my ambition at the first moment was just to collect the stories. And as I began to do this, I interviewed people, I I began to write the stories down. Uh, I realized, oh, these stories don't hang well together at all, just as a collection of stories. I need to tell something about the history of the firm. So that idea grew, and the research and building a timeline and interviewing more people uh, took uh, took uh, about a year, uh, and uh, the writing of the book took another year, and then I had a very long third year of editing, assisted by my daughter, who was an author in her own right, um, who was merciless. Daddy, you're 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 speaking too long and too much about this particular subject, um, or you're you're using. Um, You're using the language that you're using here is passive verbs instead of active and things that uh, I had to learn from her but basically uh, It ended up being something that I had a passion for how do you make a firm work? How do you make a firm succeed? How do you solve problems within a firm and I realized well? gee, Nobody has really written a book like this that I know of and this might be helpful and uh, so I worked on this there was There was one other impetus that I had when I was in high school. I was very interested in becoming an architect. There were no architects in my hometown. I grew up in a small industrial town in the south part of uh of illinois and um, so I went to a nearby town for for a career's night because they had a real architect speaking, and so I was fascinated by what this architect had to say about how, the, the, how he worked and how his practice worked. And I was so interested that I phoned him the next week to ask if I could visit his office and just learn some more things. And basically, I got the brush off. I don't have time for you. And uh, you're just going to have to figure it out yourself. Well, that stung me. And I determined at that moment, again, I was still in high school, hadn't yet gone to college, I determined if I ever become an architect and a young person wants to learn something about the practice, I will always give them the time and tell them about the practice. So I had that in my mind as well, helping other architects understand just how do you actually practice? You know, we didn't get this training in school. I went to downstate from where you are, Champaign-Urbana, University of Illinois, got a very good education in architectural history and the technical sides of architecture and and uh, uh, enough about structural mechanical electrical engineering and and so on I got one course in professional practice I think it was a lecture course as I remember uh, one hour a week of a lecture and it was taught by a professor who had never practiced so I didn't learn anything about how to practice I learned a lot about design and and uh, how something about how to put a building together. I didn't know how to run a practice, how to make it work. And so as I learned these things and I collected these HOK stories and I had this idea about helping other architects, young people understand, that really gave me the idea for the book. And uh, the book has been, I must say, well-received. My door is still open to young architects, even now. Uh, If someone wants to talk to me, about my practice or how to solve some problem and I'm, I'm always willing because i think i know uh, architects can do a better job than we're doing in our society i think we've slipped from uh positions of prominence let's say 100 years ago in the in the days of the the early chicago skyscrapers and uh so on architects were a prominent members of society and these days, except for a few star architects or black cape architects, most people don't know and don't care. And the quality of, of our work, the quality of design, and I think the quality of, of the detailing of how to put a building together in the right way has suffered. And you don't fix that in a, in a firm that's not healthy. You fix that in a firm that is healthy, that has steady work, that has a good backlog that has good cash flow, where you're paying people regularly and where you uh, treat people as professionals and give them the chance to grow and learn and uh, become better and better at what they do as architects. So this was all tied up in my career, making HOK that kind of firm. And, uh, you know, HOK grew explosively uh, in a few years after I joined, I was sent to San Francisco to open the first branch office and I had never been west of Denver. I had no idea what California was like. Uh, I'm still here. I've been all over the world helping to open offices and fix HOK offices and meet with clients and, and so on. Uh, but I love San Francisco. I love where I am. Uh, I met my wife who's an architect in the San Francisco office 49 years ago. We've been married 47 years, um, and uh, she still has a little practice of her own at home. Um, We both like to say we're working hard, but just we don't have to work for money, which is a a joy. So writing, teaching, uh, helping young people figure out what to do, helping firms figure out, because we all have the same problems, don't we? Uh, how How do you operate a firm day to day and make a profit and share the profit with your employees? How do you plan for leadership succession? How do you keep from going out of business when the work gets short? And I had to figure all that out. My predecessors at HOK had to figure it out. I learned from them. I added a few things of my own and uh, taught people who followed me and basically built a firm that is internally uh, as strong as some of the buildings that we've designed. I'm going to take a little deep breath because I think I've for long. <laughs> well, we yeah, would. Patrick,
1: I I certainly can't agree more with your with your your assertion there that like that that you know that, that architect the, the one of the problems of the field and we've discussed this on here before is that ar- many architects still believe That they are city builders they're the ones who inherited the keys to building the built environment when really in many ways they've been outflanked and surpassed by others so a story i love to tell i think i may have dined out on this on the podcast before is like a decade ago i was invited to be one of a number of speakers to an off-site for ucla's architecture faculty so frank gary was in the room uh, uh tom main greg lynn they were all there and we were all sort of throwing out provocations and the provocation i gave to them was you think you make the world, you don't. Like 25 year old consulting you know, associates are dictating urban design programs for various nations in the Gulf. And economists like Paul Romer want to build cities from scratch. And you know, unless you branch out, unless you become more integrated firms and think about consulting and financing and all these sort of areas, then you will be rendered as sort of form makers and, and you'll be brought in as sub consultants. And you can imagine this went over like a lead balloon. I think Tom Main started yelling at me. Um, I'm curious, I mean, HOK is what a number of firms, Gensler comes to mind, and then there, you know, there are architecture firms primarily that have integrated and gotten bigger. And there's engineering firms, AECOM after it's roll up and Jacobs and some others that have branched out as well. But if you were back in the saddle today You know, what would HOK look like? Or what should that firm look like? It seems like they've not yet reached the size and complete evolution of what they could be given the challenges in the world today. We've seen tech companies like IBM and Cisco 10 years ago think they should design cities with a whole smart city aspect. It seems like nobody has all the pieces or all the programs. What would be your your agenda, I guess, if you had your druthers today?
2: Well, um, I I think you've touched on a really big point here, which is, you can't make a great city one building at a time. You just can't. Um, We have in, in this country and around the world, actually, a lot of big sprawling cities that are filled with problems. They're poorly planned. They're choked with traffic. They have a lot of pollution problems, et cetera, et cetera, and a sprinkling of a few good buildings. That's not a great city. Great cities need people who can think on a big scale and who have the resources to uh, think and act in that way. Uh, if, if I could uh, go back and remake HOK uh, or any firm, I would say think bigger than you're thinking. You have to get organized first. You have to, you have to know how to operate a firm successfully. And, and then as you gain capability, and as, as people know who you are, think bigger. Don't think one building at a time. Think up. Uh, think a neighborhood, think a region of a city, be provocative, go out and uh, take as an exercise just internally, uh, how would I fix a piece of my city where my office is? And uh, if it's good enough, put it out to the press, Uh, shop it out to developers, say, we have this idea that we can transform this piece of our city. Thinking bigger, you know, design is whether you're detailing a chair or you're planning a region of a city or a new city, it's design. And what we've done is we've allowed ourselves to get, to get pushed aside. And you're quite right, uh, uh, Greg and, and Daniel, that architects are not in the front seat anymore. And we should be because these other people, IBM, they might know all kinds of things, technological, but they don't know how to design. We have this unique ability that we're trained as designers to to put into our brain all kinds of information, diverse, sometimes conflicting information, and through a process of sifting through uh, options, coming up with something that really works. And that works at the scale of a city, just like it worked at the scale of a a small or even a large building. Uh, Think about an airport. Airports are, are, in a way, a test bed for what a city could be. Uh, airports uh, are like small cities. They have streets. They have infrastructure. They have buildings. They have security needs. They have medical needs. There's certainly a lot of retail. They even have airplanes that come and go. Um, and so we can think about the scale of a big airport, which is, you know, the size of an airport is measured in miles. Uh, from one end to the other, I think the Dallas Fort Worth Airport is larger than Manhattan, for example. So if you can begin to plan at that scale uh, and not be afraid, then you can begin to think about urban scale. And if you if if thinking about remaking New York City is a little too much for you, think about remaking the uh, University of California system. Um, here's here's a provocative idea. Every campus of the University of California where I live, Berkeley and UCLA and all the others, I think there are 12 or 13 campuses. Um, Each one has its own um, campus architect. Each one has its own um, uh, development committee of some kind. And what's the purpose of a university? Why are they planning their own campus? Their job is to teach and to do research. A really provocative idea is get together with the developer, make a proposal to the UC system and say, here's the deal. We'll take care of all your buildings. We'll master plan your campuses. We'll upgrade your buildings to the greenest state possible. We'll reduce your energy consumption to a bare minimum. We'll green your campuses with, uh, with lush foliage that's appropriate to the climate zone. And you can focus on teaching. And yes, you can give us your specifications and needs for your next building program. We'll take care of all of that. And we will also manage your buildings for you. Everything from changing the light bulbs and sweeping the floors to managing managing the, uh, the maintenance and or repair, ordinary maintenance of your building, just like Boeing does with aircraft. Boeing makes as much money, I am told, in maintaining aircraft as they do in in building and selling new airplanes. So we have to think differently, we have to think bigger and we can't do it ourselves, we have to have others. Uh, HOK, one of the last projects that HOK did uh, before I stepped down was the remaking of LaGuardia Airport in New York City. If you've ever flown in or out of LaGuardia, it it was a disaster. Uh, President Biden, when he was vice president, Called it a third world airport, and that stung the the New Yorkers. So they finally decided to do something about it. The airports here. This is a this is not something that architects normally think about. But if you want to be in this sandbox, if you want to be in this big scale place, then you have to think big. New York said, "Okay, we need to do something about LaGuardia Airport. It was a uh, well uh, well worn." Airport operating way over its capacity to handle passengers. What do you do? And uh, there was no money. The airport is owned and operated, was owned and operated by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which is a a bi state uh, authority. But the Port Authority also operated the World Trade Center, which was, of course, destroyed in the 9 11 disaster. And they spent so much money. dealing with that disaster that their money was gone. So they had nothing left for that airport. What did they do? They put the airport out basically for rent. They rented it to uh, the, the best package of in, inducements to a, a consortiums. Uh, we joined one consortium and were the successful one that said, we will take this airport from you. We will rebuild it. We'll operate it for 30 years. You will get a share of our operating profits from operating the airport, landing fees, concessions, uh, all the rest. And at the end of 30 years, it will revert back to you, or we can renew for another 30 years. Our consortium won. So what did that package include? It included finance, including airport operations. It included a design team, which HOK was the architect, and it included a builder. Uh, and it was in the billions, billions with a B. And we came up with a design that I think won the, won the job for us, a uh, very ingenious design to take a very con- congested airport and, and where, where you couldn't build tunnels under the ground because of flooding. Every time there's a hurricane, the airport floods. So we built sky bridges over taxiways. So you could go from a new terminal building on a skyway, a sky bridge with planes going under you, you got great views of Manhattan by the way, to satellite terminals. So for the first time in LaGuardia's history, the planes could actually uh, use the taxiways and go all the way around the, uh, the remote gates. And this allowed the airport to actually increase its operational capacity. So now uh, the consortium is running the airport uh, HOK established a new reputation in New York city and, uh, uh, the mayor and the governor and others ask HOK, well, gee, since you've done this, can you connect the airport up to the city subway system? Can you help us with the development of the area immediately around the airport? Because all of a sudden a successful airport, uh, needs to have lots of other things around it. People want to have conferences. They fly into LaGuardia they meet in, in conference centers. They need hotels to stay in it. It goes on and on. So now we're impacting a big region of New York City. And it's because we had the courage and the and the know-how to think at that big scale and to work with big players in finance, uh, big contractors, uh, and, and people know how to operate airports efficiently. That's the kind of thing I mean. You can't do that just by wishing to do it. You have to start from where you are. You have to learn how to operate your firm very efficiently. You have to make money because if you don't make money, then you can't pay your people well or give them good bonuses. You won't attract the best top talent. It takes all of this. So you have to start from where you are and build up to it. Uh, But if I were running HOK, I would say our future is more things like LaGuardia and fewer things like one building at a time. Maybe a campus at a time, but one building at a time is not going to get the job done. I think the world needs great buildings, but it needs great thinking about design at a bigger scale.
0: Well, thank you for that. I, I mean, that I don't think I've ever uh, thought I would say in my lifetime that I can't wait to fly into LaGuardia again. but uh... yeah. But thanks to you guys, I think I can. I'm really excited about that design, especially the ability to pass over the, the the jets. You know, that's like the little kid in me who went to the airport for fun to watch planes. You know, that that's the next the next uh, generation of that. I mean, I think um, you know, thinking of that larger scale is is really critical, especially as the kinds of projects that are now being announced and and kind of gobbled up by you know the consulting firms like Ernst and Young EY or PricewaterhouseCoopers who you know are are good at corralling assets and and, and compiling data but not they're not designers um, you know those are the kinds of projects that you're hearing them um, you know taking on things like the the line in Saudi Arabia and and I did want to ask you about that project because I know HOK had a lot of experience with very large scale projects in Saudi Arabia <clears throat> And this is even larger and um, so there's sort of two questions here like uh, you know if you had to go into this as an architecture firm how would you deal with it and then secondly you know when you were at hok were there these sorts of ethical questions raised about working with let's just call them difficult clients in the middle east Um, and how did you deal with them and how would you deal with them now
2: um yes hok has worked in saudi arabia for on, on many projects over many years uh and under various kings um, um, the the current king and you know the the idea that you shouldn't work for in in Saudi Arabia because the king uh i think the word is maybe had somebody assassinated well that is an ethical question uh i I think I would have some hesitancy about that at this point but but think about this. Um, What, what is the impact going to be on other people? Not about the impact on the Kings. King's got all the money. he has got any kind of life he wants. What about the people there? Uh, How are they going to benefit from something that you do as an architect? I think the ultimate answer is not to get so stuffy about who the client is, but what impact can you have on a city or on a country And on the people who live and work there, Uh, if you can help people, well, maybe just hold your hold your nose a little bit and get yourself in a position to help people in in any country that you can. Um, So, uh, yes, we have worked all over the world. We worked in China. We worked in in the former Soviet Union. I've got a couple of funny stories there. Um, uh, In fact, let me just let me just if I, if I could, let me just diverge into that a minute. Uh, when, when the Soviet union imploded back in the late eighties, I think it was, um, under Mikhail Gorbachev, and that became Russia again, there was this huge rush of architects and investors and business people that flocked to Moscow and to St. Petersburg to, uh, to start businesses, thinking that the the door was open and the Russian people need everything that everyone else needs. They need good buildings. They need they need uh, uh, fast food. They need McDonald's, for example. You probably know that the most successful McDonald's franchise ever was the one that was first installed in in Moscow. So we went to Moscow and opened a small office, and and we learned some some real lessons. First is that a lot of people just didn't pay us wow well how come well just it's the nature of the country that people don't don't uh, there's not a uh, there's not a culture around following the law when you have a contract that says i do work you pay me so we we learned that we had to get payment in advance in order to do work and the most successful projects we ever did in moscow one was for the american school and our clients were Americans, and the U.S. Embassy. And the U.S. Embassy, kind of a humorous story. the The U.S. Embassy, don't think of it as a building. Think of it as a compound, it's a collection of buildings with a wall around it, in the in Moscow. And uh, the last project that had been built there had been um, an office building for, um, for a, a, basically a meeting center for embassy staff and. Uh, For secret meetings of embassy and US officials that would visit and so on and it was built by a Russian a Soviet excuse me contractor and uh, They found when the building was finished the uh, they, They went in and inspected they found that behind the plaster walls. There were thousands of microphones Embedded to pick up. So basically it was it was the building was so riddled with listening devices they could, could not use it uh, for its intended purpose, so they could do no secret or top secret work or conversations in that building. So they hired HOK to design a replacement building, and they were so paranoid about it that um, we designed it in our Washington, D.C. office. We had a special room in Washington created, and only the project team that worked on the project could go in. I could not myself, because I didn't have clearance, even though I had a top secret clearance from the government. I couldn't go into this little room in the Washington office and they couldn't talk to me about it except in the most superficial ways. Like, yes, we're making money or yes, we're on schedule or no, we're not. Uh, They designed the building as a, as it it was the owner's criteria, the the state department building had to be designed uh, so that all of the components could be pre-assembled in the U S And fit into shipping standard shipping containers, the kind that you see on on container ships and trucks and and stacked around uh, all over the world now. These standard size containers, and uh, they hired a U.S. contractor at great expense, and with U.S. labor, uh, the 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 pieces were put together, put into these containers, sent in a ship, U.S. chartered ship, uh, sailed from New York to uh, St. Petersburg, where there's a port, put on a special train with, uh, with Secret Service uh, escort and sent to a, a staging yard outside of Moscow, again, operated by this American contractor. And then every day, truckloads of these containers would go to the site and be erected in place in the, in the uh, U.S. Embassy compound. I guarantee you there are no listening devices in that building but it was that building was probably the most expensive building that we've ever designed just because of the extraordinary circumstances. That's just a funny story. Uh, but you have to be prepared to do things to serve your clients. And I think um, there's a lesson in this that I just want to get across. If you go into a client for an interview, I've seen so many architects do the same thing over and over again what do they do? They talk about themselves. Here is my work. Here's what I do. Here's my philosophy. Rarely do they go into a client and say, what are your needs? How are you thinking about this project? What will it mean to your business or to your, to your mission, whatever you are? Maybe it's a hospital. How will it help you provide health care? Um, too many architects are not interested, overtly interested in who their clients are. And if you're not, you're not going to make those steps up to designing sections of cities, I I guarantee it. You have to be collaborative. You have to be interested in what other people are doing and what their needs are. And if you really are a good listener, you will get clues uh, about how the building design should be be, uh, organized so that it actually serves that client's needs. And I've seen so many architects think of clients not as people to be served, but as opportunities to express their design skills. So I'll pause there. I've I've rummaged around on. I think we started with Saudi Arabia. Excuse me. I have been called. Um, I'm I'm Irish. I've been I've been called. I have the gift of Blarney.
0: <laughs> well, I, I've <coughs> been enjoying the journey here. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected. Um, to, to have heard about the uh, construction of a Soviet embassy or rather a U.S. embassy in the Soviet Union or former Soviet Union um, with that degree of precision. Um, but I'm not surprised given that those were the concerns. I guess maybe jumping down the scale a little bit, you know, fostering an, an office culture seems to be something that was really important to you and, and important to get across in this book. Um, there was an anecdote in the book about how Uh, I think it was the chairman of Neiman Marcus had called the HOK office on a Saturday and he'd gotten Gio Abada on the line, who was one of the principals. He's the O in HOK. Uh, And because he was able to reach him on a Saturday, he thought this guy's going to do a lot of great work for me. So I'm going to hire him on the spot. And HOK got the commission to do the um, Neiman Marcus uh, at the Houston Galleria, which the firm had also designed. Um, which is a great story. Um, but I, in the context of today's sort of backlash against the underpaid uh, or non-paid intern or the 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 culture of architecture firms having people sleep under their desks and work 80 hours a week, et cetera, um, how do you think that story holds up and, and how would we How can we build a healthy culture for firms and and be very sort of client service forward like that anecdote conveys?
2: Well, I actually think they they both go together. And let me just tell you the tag end of that story, the Neiman Marcus story. Uh, Stanley Marcus interviewed us, um, liked Gio, and that was his test to see if we work hard. Now, Gio Obata always worked Saturday morning, always. And uh, he worked even after he retired from HOK, he came in as a consultant and worked more you know, well into his nineties. He just passed away this year at age 99. So he always worked on Saturday mornings. And if you were a designer in the firm, which is where I started, you worked Saturday morning, but it was okay if you took off Thursday afternoon to go to the dentist, or it was okay if you left early to get your kid from school. Um, uh, people were pretty flexible about that. There was no rigidity about it. It was just the way it was. And uh, Marcus, that was his little test to see if Gio Obata, because he had told him, yes, that we work, uh, we work on Saturday mornings. So he tested Gio by calling the office that day, uh, that particular Saturday, and somebody answered the phone and he asked if he could speak to Gio. And when Gio got on the line, Marcus said, this is Stanley Marcus, you've got the job. The rest of that story is this. After Gio got involved in designing the the Neiman Marcus store at the Galleria, Galleria wasn't designed yet. The Galleria was an idea. And um, when Marcus saw how Gio thought about what he said about retailing and how he wanted the customer to have a certain experience in his store, he became so impressed that uh, he in, he said to the, to the developer of the Galleria, you've got to meet Gio Obata. I think he should design the, the Galleria. And so that happened. Gio ended up, again, you, you've got to take advantage of everything. He impressed Stanley Marcus. Stanley Marcus introduced him to the developer of the Galleria and Gio designed the Galleria. The Galleria became instantly famous. It was a three-story high interior mall. And in Houston, Texas, if it's not interior, it it ain't going to work because it's hotter than blazes, as you probably know. And he had the audacity to put an ice rink, ice skating rink, right in the center of the three-story space uh, between the Neiman Market Store and the other anchor at the other end. And uh, all of Houston turned out to come to this extravagant mall And they began to, uh, the the developer wasn't finished. Guillaume set it up so that they could add office buildings and hotels to the outside of the mall. So that you could could live in a, uh, you could work in an office building, or you could stay at a hotel and stroll into the mall for lunch or meet your friends. Um, So the idea of creating a city center grew from that. And uh, that led to, projects as far away as Jakarta, Indonesia and London, England uh, where people wanted to do something like the Galleria. That all started because Stanley Marcus called on a Saturday and reached Giawabana. So uh, you have to be, if you're going to be a successful architect, you have to seize opportunities when they come your way. You have to be alert to them and you have to be prepared to be your best and do your best um when these things come along, because they will if you're doing a good job this is this is not this is not a culture of hope this is a culture of actively looking for opportunities and taking advantage of them when they come um, so yeah, let me just talk about internal culture a minute. I think you asked that as part of your question um, That's a really really important part of who h o k is. And I think it's a good, important part of any successful firm. They're not all like this, but many of the successful firms are, which is the culture inside the firm is highly collaborative and mutually supportive. People are not um, breaking, their breaking, climbing over each other to get to the top in HOK. They're helping each other to succeed. And the founders said, we want to collaborate this is, this is a mantra. We're going to collaborate inside the firm so we can compete outside. So if we're, if we're putting our best foot forward as a firm and we have locations around the world and we've got a particularly good healthcare architect in Los Angeles, but uh, we, we have a hospital that needs a great healthcare architect in, in New York or in London, we're going to ask that healthcare architect to relocate or to commute to, to put our best foot forward for that healthcare client. Uh, Because it's more important that we serve our clients with the best we can be than it is to, to just use the perhaps not as good healthcare capability in New York city to serve that client. That's something that you just don't do. That we did some of that, and I had to straighten some of that out so that we're now really focused on this as a firm. That you, if a client is going to entrust you as an architect with uh, a, a big project, you better put your best foot forward or you won't get another project like that.
1: Very interesting. Well, Patrick, shifting gears a little bit here uh, because there's only so much time. Dan and I could listen forever, but we're going to don't want to keep our listeners for uh, for hours and hours. But um, I want to ask about the McLamey curve, which is obviously probably what you're best known for uh, outside the narrow field. Which I think is interesting because, of course, if I understand it, the McLamey curve is arguing that, of course, it's very uh, inexpensive early on in any given project to make changes and make, uh, you know, to, to basically improvise there. While, of course, it becomes exceedingly costly later as decisions are baked in and processes begin. And I think that's really interesting because it's another example of architecture either discovering before or in parallel with a lot of technology firms, because uh, in, in the software world, there's the whole notion of improvisational debt, that, you know, that if you want to build scalable systems, you you know, you can kludge things together early on, but eventually you have to go back and you have to pay that technical and improvisational debt. And so I, I'm curious your thoughts on like sort of, you know, uh, how many years have passed there about applications of the McLeamy curve in, in other fields and also why your thoughts on why there is a persistent inability to create economies of scale in the construction aspects of this. I literally just saw another newsletter start to explore this, that we just, we've never seen economies of scale in home construction, for example, or, or related fields. It seems persistently stubborn to advances in productivity. So, I don't don't know, I'm curious your thoughts. Are we ever gonna crack that nut?
2: Well, yes, we are, and you know, you guys are gonna have to talk to me again uh, about building smart. (laughs) Gladly. I mean, um, I I became, in mid-career, I I had 50 years at HOK, and 25 years in, I got so frustrated by one particular problem that we had. I'm getting, I'm coming around to answer your question on a certain, particular way. Uh, so forgive me a minute. Uh, I found that as we designed any buildings, uh, office buildings or laboratories or anything else where there's multiple floors and you have a uh, the space above a suspended ceiling and the floor above called a plenum. That's where all the stuff is. ductwork and, and plumbing and electrical and um, sprinkler lines and lights and so on. And uh, for the life of me, on my projects in San Francisco, and this was fairly common, especially when we were doing 2D CAD, uh, we couldn't seem to fit all the things into the plenum. And when it got to the contractor to build it, we always had difficulties. We always had lots of questions from the contractor. How do, how do you expect me to build this? And uh, why couldn't we solve this? Simple, what I thought was a s- fairly simple problem of geometry? which led me to become one of the co-founders of of what became eventually Building Smart International, which is uh, basically uh, the organization that is now dedicated to uh, getting architects, engineers, contractors, and building owners, and now infrastructure owners pushed into the digital uh, world to grow up, put away the old tools, think in new ways about How can we exchange the right information? You know, If I was a software guy, I'd say that was data, but I'll just keep it simple. I need information from my engineers when I'm designing my plenum. They need information from the structural engineer about where the beams and columns are. And we need information from the mechanical about which goes first, the plumbing pipes or the ductwork, and so on. So if we could solve that, we could have better buildings. And you know what? It's already been solved. The auto industry solved it. The aircraft industry solved it. How did they do it? Well, there they had a few big owners like Boeing and Airbus. That's it. Only two big commercial aircraft manufacturers in the whole world, basically. Well, how did they do it? Well, they forced everybody, you know, if you're going to be a supplier to us, you're going to use this software. And this is the information or the data that we need from you. And when you deliver it, you need to deliver it on Tuesday, not Wednesday, and not Monday. Uh, So they were driving the the boat. We're architects. We're not owners. So we have a fragmented industry. We've got owners and, you know, um, how many auto manufacturers are there in the world? Maybe 15, something like that. How many aircraft? I just said two. Um, uh, In the world of design of, of buildings, there are thousands of players and even big firms like hok are a little little peanut sized when you compare us to to ford or general motors or toyota or uh, etc and we don't do everything integrated we don't necessarily engineer our own work we have consultants and we don't necessarily build we have contractors who build with this is forcing us as an industry i believe to to come back together. Uh, We need to think about contractors as our valued colleagues and friends, not as as somebody, gee, I have to collaborate with them because they have to build my building, but I don't like it. I'm only going to give them the information, the minimum information that I can because I don't want to get sued. We have to change the way we think about our industry. And I think the industry is going to be forced to change how we work. I think design, bid, build is, is uh, going to go into the dustbin of history. I think design, build or variations, collaborative based uh, designing and building is the way it's going to go forward. And why? It makes more sense. It allows people, you know, if you want to manage complexity like that plenum, um, if you want to uh, manage the risk of designing and building a building and making it work right, and making a profit, you're far better doing it together than separately. So um, again, I could talk for hours about this, but we have to wake up and smell the coffee, folks. The way the old way of of designing and building is changing, and it has to, because it doesn't serve us well. And if architects want to rejoin society in a central place, up there with doctors and and uh, used to be doctors, ministers, and uh, and uh, professors and and architects were at the top. I don't know where the architects are, but I think the uh, the the professors maybe are still at the top, but architects aren't. And and you know the world needs us, so we've got to get the rules of the game changed so that we can actually be successful again.
0: And do you think that the the the, the building smart initiative, which is the um basically proselytizing the importance of, of building information modeling is, is part of that formula of, of putting architects back on the throne of master builder, as it were?
2: Yes, I do. I think that and the MacLamy curve are actually two sides of the same coin. That is a little simple idea. Why do we design? Why do we have a schematic design phase? It's for the architect to try out different ways of designing something maybe it should be a two-story building, maybe it should be three-story, maybe it should be one story. How should I arrange my rooms? How do I take advantage of the sun or the views? Whatever it is that's important um, to take the time to try things. Well, all I'm saying is make design a longer phase, a, a bigger phase, get more things decided. It's a really a combination of design and what uh, what traditionally was design development, which is getting the major systems in place. We don't need the door schedule, uh, not not at the not at the at the Corp phase. But we do need to know where the structure is. That's where the money is, the skin, and the basic uh, the basics at least of the mechanical system. Why? Because it's bulky. We need to know where are the fans, where are the ducts, and so on. Wires and pipes can kind of come along later. But that's what we need. And and Building Smart helps us stitch all that together so that the computer, the technology, the software can actually be a, a, a big assist to the architect. If we do our job right at Building Smart, as you're designing, you should be getting uh, on your computer screen, as you're making choices about window placement, you should be getting real-time information about what you've just done to your energy calculation or your heat load. You should be getting cost information on another screen that says I've just added or I've just uh, added so many dollars to my construction costs. Uh, if you had your contractor with you, the contractor would also say, "Gee, you've just put windows in here. Here are three options for windows that we can get uh, in time for this project. What do you think?" So it could be a collaborative process, aided uh, and and uh, supported by great technology. Not something that you have to become a technologist to understand, but a good, sharp pencil, basically. So that's where Building Smart is headed. And it's an exciting journey. And again, you, you'll you have to have me back to talk more about it because it's a big story with lots to tell. And that is my, that is, I'm working on a second book now that's going to be about the, the Building Smart journey.
0: Oh, great. Well, then we will definitely have an occasion to bring you back, if if not many. Um, Patrick, I really want to thank you for for taking the time and telling these stories because they're the stories that you don't often hear. Um, I mean, everyone's got sort of, you know, a battle story, but to have it integrated into practical advice is is kind of a rare thing. Um, and it's an industry that doesn't really have much in the way of a playbook, considering how venerable it is. Um, and so I think you've bought some insurance that architects will continue to be relevant uh in the future. So I wanna thank you for that and for spending time with us.
2: Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, I love to talk about architecture and what we need to do to be successful. So thanks for giving me this, uh, this opportunity.
0: You bet. We'll talk to you again soon.